This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Ramla said, suffering is grace. Purify and wait for grace. So are we practicing so we can run away from suffering? We can push it away or are we practicing because we want the truth? And if we really want the truth, then suffering is going to be grace. Suffering is showing us exactly, perfectly, in fine, perfect detail, where your heart is still closed, where you're not trusting the Dharma, where you're not trusting that Maharaj is always in communion with you. Welcome to Healing at the Edge, a podcast featuring interviews, archive talks, and teachings on conscious living, conscious dying with Ramdev Dale Borglum, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Dale has been a meditation teacher for nearly 50 years and has been at the bedside of the dying and their loved ones for over 40 years. He was the director of the Hanuman Foundation and founded the first center for conscious dying in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's taught with Stephen Levine, Ram Dass, and countless others on the spiritual path. Dale is still working with the dying today. For more information, please visit livingdying.org. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so good to see all of you. Today, I would like to talk about core healing practices that are underutilized. I've been a meditation teacher, I have to confess. Uh, I'm a little bit leery of that title. I think meditation and meditation teaching is a little bit suspect, but for a very long time. And I also have a lot of private clients off and on. Many people who have done a lot of practice. And it really has begun to appear to me that there are certainly some core practices that are very useful, very important, that are talked about a little bit, but are really ignored or underutilized by people. And I'd like to point them out today. I'd also like to suggest that what we're doing here is very collaborative at any point. You can jump in and say, hey, what does that mean? Or I've got a joke that fits right into this part of your talk or whatever. But just just John's rubbing his hands. Now I'm really worried. Okay. So, so let's just let this be as informal as it can be. The first core healing practice that is often underutilized is examining our motivation. Particularly people who have been practicing for a while. It's easy for our practice to start to become stale. That initially you came to practice with great enthusiasm. You had a lot of motivation. You practice for a while, your mind gets a little calmer. You're a little happier. And yet there are still 
places in the, the heart mind that there's woundedness, there's resistance, there's conditioning, that looking at those places, opening to them, being with them is challenging. And it's very useful again and again and again to go back to what is your motivation for practice? What is it you really want? My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, had this great quote, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. And often we're so busy in our lives that we forget about the most important thing. We get caught up in all the trivia, the day-to-day, keeping up with the news, keeping up with your health protocols, keeping up with all the things you're doing and forgetting about the most important thing. There are some motivating truths that turn our mind toward the Dharma. The one I've been working with lately is that life is precious. Today's a Saturday. It's a cloudy day in Northern California. I don't know what it's like where you are. I'm going to go for a hike later. I'm going to do some grocery shopping later, probably. I'm going to be, I'm still recuperating from COVID, so I'm going to do some resting. But it's really nice to start the day of asking myself, what is it I really want? What's the important thing? And as I say right now, this this notion that life is precious, this moment is precious. This moment, this moment is the only moment that you and I can awaken. you, You can't awaken tomorrow. You can't awaken yesterday. That awakening is something that has to happen right now. Another way of looking at that is that to have a lifetime in which you have a clear enough mind, a strong enough body, and an open enough heart that you're willing to sit down on a weekend and begin to contemplate the Dharma is a very rare thing in this world. Most people on this planet are busy trying to make sure that their children don't starve to death, that they're dealing with mass migration, they're dealing with the oppressive regime, they're dealing with family matters, they're dealing with money matters. And having the luxury, having the good karma, having the the life in which you can really open to the Dharma and explore, once again, is, is precious. I remember I was in India at a certain ashram with a, a, a Swami that I ended up not particularly liking, so I won't mention his name. But he was saying this thing, here you have the opportunity to be with me as an enlightened being. So don't use too much energy in digesting. Eat only as little as you can to stay alive. And at the end of six months with him, I looked like I had just escaped from a concentration camp. I weighed 113 pounds. There was blood co- coming out of my asshole, my feet, and other places where blood shouldn't be coming out of because I was trying so hard to get enlightened. Instead of trusting the preciousness of surrendering into who I was. I'm not saying it was completely his fault. My naivete and his whatever it is interacted in a way that wasn't very healthy for me. So what I'm suggesting here is really looking at motivation. You're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. This moment is so precious. And just for a moment now, as we begin today, these two hours together are so precious. Let that sink in. Let it sink in how precious it is to have the technology, the people all over the world. There's Jim in 
in France. There's Carly all the way over in, in uh, Berkeley or Albany or wherever the heck it is. We won't go through all the places here. People are all over the place, right? So is it possible to just feel grateful, to feel the preciousness of what we're experiencing right now? How alive are you willing to be? What do you really want in the core of your heart? So moving on then to the next core healing practice that is often underutilized. That is embodied mindfulness. Mindfulness is obviously a super hot topic. There's, I live right over the hill from Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And I would be surprised if everybody in this room at some point or the other had not practiced mindfulness. But particularly here in the West, people often enter into meditation from a disembodied standpoint. In my private counseling practice, a lot of people are coming to me and asking, why is this happening? What, what can I do about this instead of what is happening? What in the sense of somatically is happening right now? What does it feel like to be in my body when I just found out my sister has been diagnosed with serious cancer and she didn't call me up, but she called up our other siblings which is a call I got yesterday. Very often, people focus on the trigger, particularly if there's a difficult emotion, rather than what is actually going on. So this movement from why to what, this movement from instead of trying to solve a problem to settle into the somatic experience, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a slogan, drive all blames into yourself, into oneself. Instead of blaming the weather, the traffic, the neighbor, the family, the bank account, the body, you take responsibility for here is the way I am feeling now, the ability to respond, responsibility. Grounding and centering practices, inhabiting the first three chakras, which we've talked about in great depth in some of the earlier groups and are talked about in great depth in some of the podcasts. We're not going to go into that too deeply today. But I find again and again how useful it is to go back to inhabiting my body when something is difficult. Having COVID for three weeks and inhabiting a body that doesn't really feel like my body is uh, this great opportunity for deepening the exploration of who, who, who am I? And beyond that, who lives and who dies? So this body is not, it, it, it doesn't enjoy climbing up steep hills the way it did a month ago. It's saying, no, I want to lie on the couch. Maybe I'm being lazy. Some people might say that, but uh, I'm not good at resting. So I'm learning about, okay, here's what my body is telling me right now. Qualities of fear guilt and shame are exactly the emotions that arise when we're not grounded and centered. Fear, 
when we're not inhabiting the root chakra, guilt, the second chakra, guilt about what I'm doing, shame, the third chakra, shame about who I am. So if you're feeling guilt or shame, you're not centered. If you're feeling fear, anxiety, attacked, shocked, you're not grounded. You're not inhabiting the root. And these are very direct antidotes to a large percentage of what is bothering us. Can you watch the propensity to be bothered? And when you're feeling bothered, what does it feel like? Where in the body are you feeling it? Is it possible then to drop back into receiving support? If you're a, a devotional person like I am, I experience this as a relationship with the mother, that the divine mother is supporting me moment to moment to moment. There, there's always abundant support, abundant nourishment that allows me to be present and to thrive in this moment and the next one. Thrive doesn't mean I don't feel sick. Thrive doesn't mean I'm not going to die. But it means that I'm receiving that blessing, that sense of presence that is always available. My guru Maharaji said, I am always in communion with you. He wasn't saying that to me because I dragged my butt to India. He was saying that as a kind of a global statement to everybody. He was not just my guru. Swami Nityananda said, be peaceful. I am everywhere. So suppose we actually believed that God is everywhere so that we could be peaceful. We actually believed that God was always in communion with us. It was only one egoic clinging thought away to this, from this surrender into who we are. Maybe you're not a devotional person. Maybe what you're opening to is the Dharma, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Can you trust the surrender into the body rather than needing to try to figure it out? From the standpoint of Dzogchen, from the standpoint of non-dual, non-practice, the core teaching of Theravada, Hinayana, Vipassana practice is invoking the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha, taking refuge. The notion is that all we have to do is be mindful if we really trust the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. If we don't trust the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, then we're going to be trying to figure it out all the time. We're going to be lost in the mind. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Rather than what is happening right now. So it's possible to have this deep connection in every moment. And once again, many people enter into, into practice. I certainly did. I, I became an overly committed super meditator because I was so unhappy. There was so much suffering in my life. I was the, the stuttering statistician from Stanford, right? I, I had this PhD. It's, it, I'd spent 10 years at Berkeley and Stanford studying math and then mathematical statistics and biostatistics. And my, I, I felt so out of touch with anything that led me to believe I really wanted to be alive. I wasn't suicidal at all. I was way too narcissistic for that. But there are several people in my life, people I was talking to a guy yesterday on the phone, an old, older man who wants to stop eating and drinking and die. 
He's not sick at all. He just feels like, hey, I want to get out of here. And I was saying, I think you're copping out. The world needs somebody who has as much radiance and wisdom as you have. He said, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like doing it. I feel like it's time to go. And I said, well, I, I really respectfully disagree with you. And we had a very unsatisfying conversation. What is it that inspires you to really want to be alive? There are other people I know who have been abused and in their abuse and trying to deal with the abuse, receive further abuse in a way that there's deep trauma and it's very difficult to feel joy in life. And maybe for you, it's not as intense as that. Maybe it's a lot more subtle. Maybe for you, there's just a lot of mundane existence. There's the shopping, there's the washing your body, there's the washing the food, there's the balancing the checkbook. I've got to do, I've got to do taxes for myself, for a trust, and for the Living Dying Project. Each one of these is a day long. Three days a year, I'm doing income tax. I'm saying, God, why am I doing this? It's part of service. Okay. Centering is going beyond the struggle, letting oneself completely into the present moment. Stop trying to orient yourself in what you can pin down into the old thought patterns. Ramda said, suffering is grace. Purify and wait for grace. So are we practicing so we can run away from suffering? We can push it away. Or are we practicing because we want the truth? And if we really want the truth, then suffering is going to be grace. Suffering is showing us exactly, perfectly, in fine, perfect detail, where your heart is still closed, where you're not trusting the Dharma, where you're not trusting that Maharaj is always in communion with you. So before we go on, let's do a short guided practice. It won't be our main meditation, but this notion, purify and wait for grace. Is it possible right now as we're sitting here to just for a second again, examine your motivation. What do you really want? What do you want in this moment? And can you begin to inhabit the lower part of your body? First, getting grounded. Just imagine that you're pushing energy out the base of your torso as you're breathing out. You're laying an energetic egg as you're breathing out. You're inhabiting the root, the base of your torso, the root chakra, the antidote to fear. You're feeling grounded as you're breathing in, easy, natural in-breath, emphasizing the out-breath, but beginning to inhabit a part of the body that we often have partly, if not fully, abandoned a lot of the time. Grounded, the mother, the universe itself, there is this abundant, supporting, nurturing energy, breathing out through the base. Easy, natural in-breath, receiving the sense of support. Feel how the room has changed. People aren't collecting my ideas. There's this trusting dropping down, trusting dropping down. What does it feel like to be grounded? What does it feel like to not be grounded, to be lost in the mind? No judgment. One is not better than the other. 
but becoming comfortable with this surrender, this dropping down, inhabiting this part of your life. And then in a very similar way, dropping down into the lower belly, the hara, the dantian, a few inches below your navel, a few inches inside the front of your body, becoming center, the place from which martial arts are done. Drop down into the hara on the out-breath, easy, natural in-breath. By being centered, once again, we're going beyond struggle. We're letting go of oneself into the present moment, letting go of egoic clinging, striving, struggling, letting the shoulders release, letting the lower belly release, but taking it one step further than diaphragmatic breathing and bringing strength into the lower belly with each out breath. Imagine that you have a large blood pressure cuff that goes all around your lower belly like your belt. And the, the pressure on this blood pressure cuff is constant, whether you're breathing in or breathing out. Even though you're releasing down as you breathe out, you're still keeping that firmness, that fullness, that strength that allows an, a, a very old, frail, tiny martial arts master to defeat a young, strong novice. Not your energy, but the energy. Not your chi, but the chi. Hara literally means sea of chi. And in Japanese, the word for breath is breathe out, breathe in. We emphasize the out breath. We create the space so that we can receive the energy when we breathe in. If you don't create the space through surrender on the out breath, surrendering egoic breathing, there's no space to receive. Receiving chi, receiving shakti, receiving the blessing that is in each moment. Purify and wait for grace. What are you willing to receive? What are you willing to be touched by? What are you willing to reach out for? Okay, coming back into the room, any remarks about these first two topics? The first one is motivation. Second one is trust, this embodied mindfulness, trusting embodiment, trusting exploring the what instead of the why, trusting letting go of the narrative, trying to understand. The, the Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding, trusting Buddha Dharma Sangha, trusting God, Trusting your own true nature. Any comments about what I've said so far? Uh, Ramjan? Yes. This is John. Yes. So, yeah, so um, I can relate to what you were saying about that gentleman you're having a conversation with. He said, basically, you know, I just want to leave, leave, you know, leave the planet. Right. I'm, right. I've been feeling a lot of that these last couple of months. And actually, uh, <clears throat> I am, you know, seeing a therapist. And I actually made the mistake 
of saying that to the therapist last week. John, John, John. So she had to go down a checklist to see whether or not I should be hospitalized. I tried to explain to her it was more of an existential, metaphysical kind of thing. Right. But she didn't quite take it that way. So as I almost had to call Dale and try to have her, con- you know, you convince her that, no, John's not suicidal. Please don't put him in the hospital. Um, so you were assuming, I don't think you should be hospitalized. That might have been a false assumption. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Maybe okay. that was a, a wrong assumption. And right now I would be in there with a jacket on and okay. then. Thank you, Ramdev. Okay. Okay. Got it. But um, yeah, it's just the sense of there's this weariness of the soul. Okay. And so, I mean, I could completely relate to what that gentleman was saying to you. Uh, You know, I feel the same way. Uh, He, he, He was not feeling weary at all. He was feeling very happy. He was feeling like, oh, I've done it all. Why don't I just leave? But let's respond to your question and not compare you to him so much. I'm not quite sure how to, you know, work with that. Obviously, talking to my therapist about it was not the best idea. So um, do you have any ideas? (laughs) Yeah, well, first of all, of course, she's legally bound to do that. She said that as she was reading off the checklist, yes. Yeah, and she should do that. I'm glad she did that. I know John well enough that I know, and he's he's all the time sending me these Sufi poems about the deepest love and the deepest yearning and very beautiful poetry about love and surrender. During all this time before I really made my way to Maharaji, and even after, and even during times when I was doing a, a lot of meditation retreats, there was a part of me that it almost felt like, why am I on this planet? This seems so cumbersome having this body. I'm not enjoying this. But there was another part of me that had been touched by God, that had been touched by the Dharma. It was not something I was integrating into my life. I felt it at times during meditation. I felt it at times in nature. Just a a slight moment here and a slight moment there. But I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was real. The last time I took LSD, which was a really long time ago, I was living in Santa Cruz. Must have been like 30, 40 years ago, whenever. Uh, A friend of mine and I went down to Big Sur for the day with his enlightened golden retriever, Crandall. And... It's just the perfect day, the perfect beach. Nobody else was there. And my friend Richard said, I'm going to take some acid. Why don't you? I said, no, no, I'm done with that stuff. But it was such a beautiful day. I thought, I'll do this too. And I took some acid and I had just this lovely experience. And at the end of the day, we were walking up a rather steep path, very steep, actually, that if you fell off it, you'd die uh, towards where the car was parked. And I looked out at the ocean and You could see the individual waves, but there are also these big, huge patterns of kind of blue water and greenish water and brown water. And I thought that's that's the way life is. There are these like big, huge truths, and then there are all these little waves on the surface. And it wouldn't make any difference right now if I let go and just fell off the cliff and died. It wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. 
And I knew that was true. But a part of my brain said, but you're really high right now, so probably don't do it. <laughs> and as you can kind of guess, I'm still here, right? So, but it was not because I was afraid to die or that I thought death was bad. It's just like, but I'm on this, I'm on this planet. There's some reason I'm here. And I've, I've had these experiences. You've had these experiences. You've been given great teachings. So my feeling is I have some responsibility is way too harsh a word, but that I've been given the blessing to be with Maharaji and Anandamai and Karmapa and Suzuki Roshi and all these fantastic human beings. And that there's this lineage that I'm part of and we're part of, and that can I let that flow through me? And I got a body, I've got COVID, I've, you know, it's like, there's all that. And who knows what's going to be tomorrow, you know? But I mean, I think about Ramdas, who was the most articulate proponent of the Dharma in America for a few decades. He was, he had a great gift. And then he got this serious stroke where he could barely speak. Think about that. How he went from being the most skilled proponent of the diet. I mean, he could take the most subtle concepts and present them in a way that somebody just walking in off the street would have their lives changed. And all of a sudden, he could barely talk. But he was so stubborn. He was such a stubborn SOB that he needed that, that suffering is grace. He, that's what drove him to freedom at the end. So, I mean, hopefully I don't need that. Maybe I can be a little more flexible. But what you're going through is what kind of what John, St. John of the Cross would call the dark night of the soul. The world doesn't have any meaning and God hasn't really shown up yet. You're stuck in between. There's not the world. There's not God. There's this daily trudge. But you know that God is real, John. So get off your butt and believe it. Yes, wrong, Dave. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I've been reading a lot of John of the Cross recently. It's been very helpful. So uh, it's more a comment than a question, which is to say, I really appreciate the little introduction and a little mini meditation that we just did. I've been meditating for a long time and have had a few gurus whom I really love, including my first one, Swami Muktananda. And so I am a bhakti because I do experience this huge, 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 huge love and grace sometimes from these enlightened teachers. And I have one now whom I just love but my, and am very, very moved by. But I still struggle a lot with anxiety. And uh, that's why the the little uh, meditation that we did was very helpful because I don't get grounded much in my root. I'm always thinking these lofty right. things that and and somehow or another beating myself up for not believing what I know to be true about the Dharma and about life and about what it's all about. So I'm just weighing these things and um and, and that's basically all that I wanted to say, and that it's just been very helpful to listen here. Well, that's great to hear, but it's the perfect segue into what I want to say next. And that is compassion. Right. So that, that a lot of spiritual practice is about having compassion for yourself. 
you were saying you're beating yourself up. You've had these wonderful gurus and here you're still an anxious person. You're a bad meditator. You're a bad practitioner. We're talking now about the heart and there's a lot written about devotion and about gratitude and about forgiveness. There's a lot written about compassion too, but not necessarily so much about self-compassion and having mercy for ourselves. I know so many meditators who are so hard on themselves that they're feeling, here's the goal, here's where I am, there's a gap between these two places, and why the hell can't I diminish this gap and get there? There is no gap. There is nowhere to get. Anxiety is just as much the Divine Mother as non-anxiety. It doesn't feel as good. And it might, it might clutter up your mind when you're thinking, I should meditate with a different kind of mind. But as long as you're using practice to feel that I'm broken and I need to fix my brokenness to get to this unbroken thing I read about in the books, you're stuck. You're spinning your wheels in the mud. You're not going to go anywhere. That meditation is really about realizing that there's nowhere to go, that I did so many Zen retreats, so many Vipassana retreats. And finally, it's like what we could have said to John there. I, I gave up. I had tried my best and I didn't get there. I almost died in India a couple of times. I practiced that hard. I almost died, literally. And still, I was a neurotic mess. <laughs> I'm still a neurotic mess, but I don't care anymore. So that's a big step in the right direction. The Buddha said, the awakening of faith or devotion is the dawn of realization, like a great light rising and shining within the heart. Without devotion, you're never going to feel any intimacy between yourself and the teachings or the lineage masters. The Buddha is talking here about devotion. And I could tell you so many stories about how many teachers have come from the East and have been surprised that how what a difficult time Westerners have in feeling devotion because they don't feel self-compassion. I was at a, a Tibetan empowerment and the teacher said, okay, let's everybody open your hearts, think about your mother. And then he said, oh, I forgot I'm in America. Thinking about your mother doesn't mean your heart's going to open. Think how, I mean, everybody kind of laughed because it was so profoundly sad that you couldn't really take into yourself deeply enough the the tragedy of living in a society where a lot of people don't love their mother because our society is broken in so in certain kinds of ways pirvalayat khan like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart each one of us is a part of her heart and therefore each one of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain you are sharing in that pain and are called upon it. You are called upon to meet it in joy rather than self-pity. The secret, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy. So that this anxiety that Sandy's talking about, offer that. That's your offering. Your life is your offering. Offering it to the mother, offering it to God, offering it to your practice. We go from conditioning to yearning for love to being love. 
So compassion literally means to suffer with. Compassion is not an emotion. It's not like I'm going to feel some compassion and I'm going to send it to John because he his life is is without joy or send compassion to Sandy because Sandy's feeling anxious. I go into my heart, I open it, I feel compassion. It's a state of being. I feel compassion for me, for Sandy, for John, for Sheila, for everybody in the room. And it's not like I'm I'm doing compassion. I'm surrendering into that openness. So that self-compassion, once again, is a very important, often ignored core practice that will deal with John's question, will deal with Sandy's comment. And probably 90% of the people who come to me, if they can get grounded and centered and feel self and feel compassion, particularly self-compassion, hooray, we've 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 created there's a lot of healing has happened. Uh, Rhonda Trudy has a question. Actually, it's a burning comment about self-compassion. Um, I've tried so hard to love myself and do the self-compassion and nothing was working. And yesterday I decided to try humor. And um, I was trying to love myself, love myself. And I'd already had anxiety attack and all kinds of things. And suddenly I was able to step out of my usual looking at myself and saying, oh, you need to love yourself, you know, that kind of dialogue. I was able to step back and I started almost laughing. And I said to my unloving self, um, oh, you got to love her. You just got to love her in that sort of humorous way, you know, like she's so quirky and she, she just can't seem to love herself. But suddenly I loved that part of me too, that I couldn't love myself, which was one of my biggest judgments because I should know better. And it's hard to explain, but I really got it. I could really love even that part of myself that couldn't love myself. Right. was so freeing. And I just laughed and I said, and at that moment, I loved all of me. It's, ah, you got to love me. <laughs> and that's it. So Trudy's making a very, very important point here. And whether you do it through humor or whatever else, that we often sit down with good intentions. I'm going to feel compassion. I'm going to do that. I'm going to feel compassion for somebody else. And we can't do it. We're feeling too anxious or we're feeling too dark or whatever it is. And some qualities on the spiritual path that are rarely talked about are about our humility and flexibility. So you sit down and you're going to practice because a friend of yours is suffering and you can't do it. Are you humble enough to admit that you can't do it and flexible enough to change your practice into compassion for yourself? A friend of mine had, I've told this story before and I'll, I'll greatly abbreviate it, but he had a very fraught relationship with his father. His father had been a very difficult person. His father died. And a few years later, he decided that he was going to do Tong Len, that's compassion practice, essentially, for his father uh, over a three-day weekend. And after three days, he was so frustrated because he couldn't feel compassion for his father. 
me. He called me up and said, I tried, I sat for three days trying to feel compassion for my father and I couldn't do it. What can I do? And I said, feel compassion for the part of you that can't feel compassion for your father. And he started weeping. And he said, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So that purify and wait for grace. Life is designed to keep showing us exactly where we're not able to be present. The, the events will keep appearing where you aren't able to be there for other people. You aren't able to be there for yourself. So, so that one of the qualities of the compassionate heart is a spacious heart, an empty heart. Buddhism talks a lot about emptiness. And what we mean by emptiness, there's no grasping to separateness. There's, there's no grasping to egoic separateness. You're allowing yourself to be empty. You're allowing yourself to just be in your body. So really what we're doing here is we're talking about a healing path. First step, let go of the why, what's, what's going on somatically. So that you're letting go of the narrative, you're just being present in your body. And then the second step is, can you also be kind to yourself? Can you be intimate with yourself? Can you show mercy toward yourself rather than being hard on yourself? There have been studies that show, obvious studies, that mindfulness increases well-being. But mindfulness combined with compassion, self-compassion, greatly speeds the movement into well-being. There's two things to do now. Being here now and being here now with an open heart toward yourself. The final point that is often underutilized is Tantra, particularly the Tantra of emotions. So what we're doing here basically is going through Theravada, Hinayana practice, to Mahayana, to Vajrayana, Vajrayana practice, Tantra, Tantric Hinduism, Tantric Buddhism. And what's being said in Tantra here, which is the point I was making to Sandy before, is that even anxiety is one of the faces of God. Every emotion has a healing message if you pay attention to it. If you get stuck in the emotion and you're thinking about the emotion and you're thinking about the thinking about the thinking about the emotion, you can do that forever. And some people do. But the point here we're making is that we're, we're in Vajrayana. We're giving up our identity as somebody who's trying to get someplace and seeing that it's all energy. It's all divine energy. So in the first stage of practice, the mindfulness, embodied mindfulness, we're giving up wanting things to be better. We're saying, I'm willing to be with things just the way they are right now. In compassion practice, we're giving up practicing for ourselves. We're practicing for all beings, which is a great motivation for practice. That's what I was trying to tell that guy yesterday. You've got all these gifts. Why don't you share them instead of saying, I'm out of here? And in, in tantric practice, we're giving up our identity as a separate being. We're just pieces. It's just uh, we're all part of one consciousness. There's where it's not that we're connected. We're one being. Maharaji kept saying "sabek, sabek," all one, all one. That was his response to almost every question. It's all one. Kind of hard to argue with that. You could tell your therapist that, John. It's all one. Life, death. Just relax. So disliking a mood misses the mark. The more a story coincides with our view of reality, the less we pay attention to it. So we're just going through our day, not really being particularly alive because 
things are okay and then something bothers us and we say, oh, maybe I can practice or what do I do now? But right now, at the end, we've been talking for an hour, a lot of ideas have been flying around. Can we rest in the energy of this moment, the oneness of consciousness, so that really the point of Tantra is the step before wholeness, the step before total healing, the place in which, into which we die. I work with dying people on a very regular basis. This moment, every moment, COVID, non-COVID, is practice for dying. It's practice for surrendering into the brilliant radiance, the boundless expansiveness of our true nature that Krishna was the exemplar of in the Gita. Somebody asked Maharaji, what's the best form to worship God? He said, every form. That means you and me and Ram and Krishna and Shiva and Vladimir Putin and everybody. Basically, using these practices to get to the point of the surrender into non-practice. Nothing is a distraction. No emotion is a distraction from the wholeness of your being. John's feeling he wants the energy to have, to be more colorful, to be more to his liking. This is it. Just the way it is. And in, 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 in final non-practice, the slogan is no meditation because there's nobody to meditate, nothing to accomplish, no distraction. Nothing is a distraction. So that's so much more restful, so much more full. We become empty of self so we can become full. So much more full than striving. Right now, can we let go of any striving at all? Imagine that you might die in the next moment or the next minute or the next hour. It's not about all the good things you've done or didn't do. It's how fully surrendered to the one reality are we in the moment when we stop breathing. We are perfect exactly the way we are. Suzuki Roshi says, you're all perfect, but there's still some room for improvement. Well, we really remember the room for improvement part. Can we re remember the, the first part of that statement? Total surrender to love, moment to moment. Find somebody, some person, some practice, some service where you 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 can express surrender, where your surrender is received. Ramakrishna, the great Bengali saint, said, our duty is to fall down in a door where others only bow. Walt Whitman said, sometimes touching another human, another person is almost more than I can bear. Can we live that way? <laughs>
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.